Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. Hey everyone, Crew Chief Eric here, and this week I get the pleasure to introduce you to two of our members, the Plucky Brits, the Latin Lads, but better known to most of us as brothers John and Steve Wade. John hails from our Southern States region and Steve from the DMV. We're really excited to have them on the show tonight and know you'll really enjoy what comes next. And with that, welcome to Break Fix. Hey, Miss Squad. Hey. Gentlemen, so many stories, so many laughs, all revolving around the two of you. So let's start off with how you got into motorsport and probably explain the whole Latin lads. Well, I can, I can tell you, I can explain the motorsports bit really easily. And Steve will actually tell you the truth. But the way it all started was because <laughs> we were bloody broke. So we had to get into repairing cars because we couldn't afford any sort of pay for it. So a little story goes along with that. One of my very early experiences with elder brother, there's actually three of us, Les, yeah? <laughs> so Les bought an old Austin, 1956-57 Austin, where we lived in England. Well, this car had a magneto and it was misfiring quite badly. So I'm little, I'm about I don't know, seven, eight, nine years old, something like that. And so Les is trying to figure out why this car is misfiring and won't run right. He climbs under the bonnet and he's, he's had me sit in the driver's seat, yeah? Now it's got a key like, like an ordinary American car. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat and it's also, by the way, an automatic, which is very important because I did not actually run him over, which surprised me. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat. Les, all I can see is his buttocks sticking up from underneath the bonnet. And he's like, all right, John. Yeah, I'm all right. No, turn it over. Cha-cha-cha. Oh, sod it. Fiddle, fiddle, fiddle. Couple of wrenches, some very foul words. Do it again. Chucka, 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 chuck. Napple. So what he has apparently done at this point in time, is pulled a spark plug out. You remember this, didn't you, Steve, eh? <laughs> Oh, yeah, oh, oh yeah. It's oh. shocking, literally. So Les <laughs> has pulled his spark plug out. Now, you and I would ground the spark plug to the block. Well, it doesn't really matter anyway, because it's a magneto, isn't it? So he says, crank it. So I turn the key, and all I see is his head up over the hood, and out he goes about 10 foot on the other side of the car. What he was doing was hanging onto the spark plug wire, the magneto turn, 20,000 volt shock right up the elbow. Bang! It shot him about six, seven feet past the car. And he gets up and he goes, that's all right, that's working then. <laughs> and that's how I got started in motors as a little one, is trying to figure out how to fix the things because we were completely and utterly broke. Now the motorsports bit, yep. brother Steve here, is actually completely to blame for an enormous expense in my life. And I'll let him tell you, how it came about. It was, yep, that's true. Yeah, I started in motorsports in the States, at least in 2000 and something, just doing pro solo. And I'll, that was when I was much younger and I had long hair and it was darker than it is now. But anyway, John was turning 50 or something like that. I don't know what age it was. I thought to myself, you know, this motorsport stuff is quite fun. Uh, my wife and I bought him a Richard Petty race thing at Atlanta Motorsports Park, which is his birthday present. So we go down there, him, Carolyn, and me, and we go to Atlanta Motorsports Park. And he's never done any of this stuff before, at least on a track. He's done other stuff on a track. So, you know, I get in the car, and he gets in the, he gets in the car, and he goes around and around and comes out again. He gets out of the car. I get in the car. And as I'm getting in the car, he grabs me by the shoulder, yanks my head back, 
and the top of his head fell off with a smile that was so broad. I said, that's it. It's going to cost you millions, mate. You're in, you're done. The adrenaline's going. You're totally hooked. And that was the beginning of Latin Lad. And now I'll hand it back to John to tell you why we're called Latin Lad. Oh, Latin Lads, yeah. And by the way, yeah, I still haven't got rid of the case of permagrin. It doesn't wash off, by the way. Yeah, but, but you have got to get rid of the money, that's for sure. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> the wallet's a lot lighter. I mean, I want to introduce you to my main sponsor, you know, Hip Pocket Racing. Uh, I've got a backup sponsor, Mr. Card. Those guys have stood with me ever since I started. Oh, the Latin Lads, yeah. So Steve and I were born fairly close to each other in two neighbouring towns, but we grew up in the same little town called Harlow in Essex. Well, Harlow has been there since Roman times. It's a shithole now, but it was all right back in them days. Uh, you know, we had the old centurions and the spears. We remember that. It's no problem. One region of the town itself was called Latinium or Latin. In the middle of what used to be a nice Roman settlement, they built our bloody school, didn't they? Well, it's bad because it was one of those 60s blocks, you know. All it was was essentially a rectangular cube plunked with holes in it, and you went and sat down, somebody yapped for a day, and then you left. That was it. So in this lovely Roman villa, they plunked our school. The school was called Latin Bush. How about it, yeah? So the Latin lads is a bit of alliteration of that part of Roman and British history. So it goes back, what, about 3,000 years or so. So the name's great. The place is a dog bath, but, you know, the name's all right. It's switch, <laughs> isn't it? Because no sod knows. You know, they go, oh, Latin lads, what's that all about? Well, lads in England is a, a, bit of a, a, a bit of a sly compliment. A lad is somebody who's a good boy. He's a good boy. You know, goes for the eyeballs. But <laughs> he's a bit of a miscreant. You know what I mean? He's always out doing yeah. Well, that fits us perfectly well. Now, the griffin... <laughs> Mythical beast, ancient Greece, I think. The griffin was the school symbol. And to this day, it was bit, it's since been turned into office blocks, which is a lot better use of it because we didn't get any education. No, yeah, yeah, no, not the griffin. It was the building that turned into office blocks. The griffin's yeah, still yeah, there. The, no, the griffin's still there. So the class before mine, which was between Steve and I, made about, uh, oh, I would say, a 12-foot-tall cutout of a griffin and put it on the wall as their sort of graduation thing, yeah? It's still there. That's wow. where the Griffin came from. And the so, three and 37, uh, Steve's 37, comes from the uh, Mini Cooper in the Monte Carlo Rally, four years ago now, yeah? The number three, yeah, is extremely important. There's no, no question about that one. We all know number three was, right? No, you don't, because it's completely coincidental. So like most people, after I got hooked, I went out and jumped in a car, Bought a full focus, never regretted anything more in my life. Anyway, never mind. It, all, it runs all right now. Well, it doesn't run at all at the moment because it's in about 8,000 pieces parts, but that's okay. So I went and did autocross, yeah? So going on the solo, like everybody, you go and do your first solo, you've got no clue, right? You've no idea what's going on. There's cars all over the place. There's guys leaning down going, burr, burr, psh, psh, and things are like, oh, squish, you know? So you got to go do your course walk. Uh, sure, I thought I was going to drive. No, go out and walk it. So you walk around, you're supposed to memorize the thing. What's a load of old cobblers? No way, right? You go around, what, what do you see? Cones. And you go around the corner, what do you see? Cones. More cones. You go down a little straight bit and they say, oh, this is a Chicago box. Chicago? Not a bad band, but you're back in the 70s, Sonny. No, 
Chicago box. It's great. And what do you see in the Chicago box? Cones. Bleeding more cones. And they said, don't hit the cones. Like, I got it. Yeah, lovely. Memorize, of course, my foot. So they said, all right, go get your number. So I says, anyone do what now? And he said, go, go over there to the trailer. There's a, there's a chap in there. Cough up some dosh, some pictures of dead presidents. Give that to him and he'll give you a number. Ha, oh, fine. So off I go. You know, how much do I owe you? Believe it or not, it's still the same today, $35. I said, all right, that's not bad for a little, you know, it's about a mile walk. So I'm done for the day, yeah? Give him the 35 bucks, I'm off. Back in the car, I'll drive home. And he, he says, you need a number? I suppose. It's just one on the, on the car, like, you know, on the back. So, yeah, it's got like, Alabama written on it. And he says, no, I'll give you one. So he had a stencil cutting machine for cutting magnetic plate. He goes, turns around, comes back. Guess what's in his hand? Another three. That's how that came about. Pure coincidence. I don't think anybody has a more thorough or complicated story about the selection of their racing number than you do. That is by far yeah. the and most the interesting story about the number three. It's all good, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> So that's how oh, we came to be yeah. racing. Steve and I were sitting there, um, you know, dr drinking a, a fruit beverage based mostly actually on grains, but it's, it didn't know. I said, well, what are we going to call ourselves? And they said, bang, that's how it all came about. That, that was the only legal one we come up with. There was others you couldn't really put in public, you know, there's lots of other names. John, when we visited you last year, we saw that you're also a bit of a car collector and you do a lot of your own, your own work. Was that something that started before you got into motorsport or did that start as a result of motorsport? Uh, it came about many, many years before that. So I told you the story of, you know, the first attempt at fixing a car and shooting my brother across the car park. So that was it. Well, that was inspiring, that was, because I could shoot many people across the car park. I'm up with it, you know, no problems. So as, as life progressed, we actually immigrated to the States and I just learned to drive in England. So I had a British driver's license, came to the States. So now I've got to learn to drive in America, yeah? Great. So eventually, my dad gave me one of his cars. Well, actually, he bought another one. I got this one. It was a 73 blue Chevrolet Impala, right? Everyone's owned an Impala. Steve so <laughs> called it the Batmobile. You know, it's like everyone in... Hey, you lived in the damn thing. Oh, uh, yeah. I actually, yeah, that's another story. Completely different subject. Yeah, that's another story. I lived in it for a while, but that was an ugly story. That was a good punch-up, that one was. So this car, being built in good Detroit steel, began to rust quite badly. So what did I do? Went and got a drill, a bit of metal, and one of the old acetylene torch things in the little cans, and I welded a bit of metal in it, sanded it down, and painted it completely the wrong color, by the way. So I'm like, ah, that looks great, that does. No, it's terrible, but it looked good, at least to me, yeah? I thought, that was fun. I love some of that. So as life progressed, I got to where I wanted to buy an E-Type, which is by far and away the sexiest thing ever to be put on four wheels. Even Enzo says, that's a nice motor. And when Enzo says, that's a nice motor, you've got to listen to the man. You know, he's had, he's had his shot at nice motors. Completely cocked it up, apparently. But never mind. So I said, I'm going to have an E-Type. To pay my way through college, I was working in a British car shop. Blokes would bring their cars in, and I'd completely and utterly cock them up and give them back and take money. Magic, right? I was making a mint. And every time I gave it back, it was broke. So they came back. It was, it was fantastic. It's a self-licking ice cream cone, It's beautiful. So I was digging this, you know. There was an E-type parked in the shop. And a bloke came down. And this is a terrific story. Absolutely true. He came down. His name was John. And my boss's name was Bear. John comes down. And he's got a 73 
black E-Type V12, red Connolly leather interior, red striped tires, wire wheels, good business. And as he drives in, you know, I'm tripping over my tongue, my entrails are going around my kneecaps. I'm like, oh, I'll have some of that. So he brings the thing in and he says, it's rattling and knocking and it don't run well. It's an E-Type. <laughs> Big shock. So Bear comes and gets me, he says, can you tune that car up? I've actually no idea what I'm doing. Uh, yeah, no problems, no problems. So he says, all right, we'll go tune it up and give it a valve adjustment. Have you ever tried to adjust the valves in a V12 E-Type? This, by the way, this is going to the car collection. I'm getting there, right? I start, yeah, I pull out the manual, bring out the, you know, the little tall, tall car, all professional-like. I look down at this engine, which is about three quarters of a mile long and about 40 feet wide. It looks like a runway. I'm like, oh, that's tricky. And it's got all these bulges on it, you know? And I'm like, what's that then? You know, and Bear says, well, that's the valve covers. Right, yeah, got it. Uh, I'll have some of that, yank that off, and I'll tweak the valves. Well, I yank those off, and what's underneath them? Look in the book, of course, the camshafts, because it's dual overhead cam. Not only is it dual overhead cam, there is no lash adjustment. You have to adjust the valves on an E-type with shims. So I go get a box of shims, and I fiddle fart around with this motor for two days, and it's not bad. Then it's the carburetor time. Little did I know what awaited me there. None of this SU cobblers, mate. None of this Solex nonsense. New, 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 new. Six twin Webbers, 12 bleeding carburetors. So I had some experience with tuning silly little English cars with stupid carburetors that are mounted sideways. So I had a, had a clue, despite the fact these were not English carburetors. I said, I'll have a go at that. So Bear comes out and he's got this disc in his hand, about that big, with a little tube on it. Have you ever seen a Unison? That's what it was. And he gave it to me, I'm like, nice, eh? That, great, sounds good. Now, what I went inside and I got a length for a rubber tube, about that long, stick it in my ear. It's not, it's not a word of a lie. And there's another mechanic there's watching me like this bloke's completely lost his marbles. Stick the tube in your ear, stick it in the throat of the carburetor and adjust the carburetor. Then you hear the hissing sound. Shh, go to the next one, it goes, Psst. adjust it again. And keep going around and around and around. So they all kiss the same amount, which means they're taking in the same amount of air. Is that why you're hard of hearing in that ear? What? <laughs> yeah. So eventually get them all adjusted and I get this engine purring, yeah? This monstrous engine. And it's going It's actually driving me bonkers. I got it that so we called up John, said, John, you come down and get your mower. So he comes down and he comes down in a rather tasty little car. Drives up and he gets out of his little car and he walks over and I said, John, it will tick about once every minute or so. And he stands and listens. And he says, that's the best that car's ever run. I said, you know, take it because you've got about 20 minutes before it goes out of tune again. So better get on the road, you know. Better drive it to the next gas station because it's got a gas tank about the size of a beer bottle. I look at the little car he drove up in. Remember, this is 1982. Gas crisis. Big engines are out of vogue. And it's a little British car. And I look at this little British car. I know what that is. And he, he looked at me and he said, do you? I said, yeah. I said, I've seen those before. We've seen them in England. I said, they're pretty rare, aren't they? He said... And he kind of grinned, you know, he had this sly grin on his face. He only an electronic shop. Said, yeah, they're very rare. I said, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one in America. So walk around this car, it's blue. And the other mechanic wants to come up and look in the, where the engine bay is, you know. And he leans on the fender. And John says, don't lean on the fender. He goes, oh, sorry, I didn't want to put fingerprints on it. He says, you're not going to put fingerprints on it. You're going to bend it. Odd story. So I'm like, what's all this about, you know? Some arrogant American worried about bending his car with the pressure of a hand. 
you know, oh, don't worry about the mosquito, it'll just go through the windshield. He says, do you want to have a go? He said, I'll take you for a ride. I said, yeah, all right. So out we go, it's a place called Hanover Street, Fredericksburg, Virginia. So we've got Hanover Street. And we go down to the local shopping mall when there was such a thing before they were all torn down. And we do the mall 500, yeah? Go around, around the parking lot, waving at the girls in that little sports car, yeah? We get back to the top of Hanover Street, which slopes downhill to Bear's shop. And he stopped and he looked over at me and he said, you want to see how this thing goes? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've been in sports cars all my life since I was a little kid. He mashed the gas in that car and I could not move. The thing burned rubber for an entire city block. And all I'm doing is screaming, ah! I mean, little girls screaming, ah! as this car is accelerating. There's clouds of smoke and there's snot mass and camel fur flying every which way. All I can do is grip on this little car. And so I, so I look at him like, what in the hell is that? So we, we come back to the shop and he goes, he, goes, he, says, he says to me, he says, it goes all right, doesn't it? I said, yeah, it goes all right there. I said, what is under the hood of this car? So he walks around and a little bonnet put two door handles on it, like from his shed. And he turns the two door handles from his shed and takes the bonnet off. Oh, that's pretty stylish. You know, don't get a gust of wind, mate. Boof, off she goes. All I can see under that is carburetors. You know what kind of car it was? I thought it was called a Bristol. It wasn't a Bristol, it was an AC. It was oh. a Cobra 427 semi-comp. 525 horsepower from the factory in a car that weighed about 2,000 pounds. That was my first experience with rather natty cars, but I like his E-type best, I wanted to buy one. Well, my finances didn't and still don't run to buying an E-type. Plus the fact they're now a precious artifact and no longer a car. So I said, I know what I'll do. I'll build myself one. So I found a company in the Good, uh, Goodwood Motor Racing Circuit in the old Shell building, which has since gone uh, in the last few years. But the Super Shell building, which is where they, they used to paddock the cars, the race cars, was a guy called John uh, Randall. And he was making a car called a Wildcat. The Wildcat's and sort of E-type replicates, really E-type inspired. It's about four inches longer and four inches wider if you ordered it like I did with the much wider fenders because I'm going to put American wheels, tires and running gear in the car. So when I got the car, I had no mounts. It had a chassis and a body and no mounts of any kind, nothing. I made all the mounts myself. Built the car myself. It's still sitting in the garage right now, although I destroyed the gearbox in it two weeks ago. Completely melted. I melted third gear. You want to try doing that? It's tricky. No, don't. It's naughty. Completely melted the gear. Except for third. Third works, right? Uh, yeah, I had a, yeah, it was melted. I had a box full of firsts, really. Uh, it wouldn't come in. There was no neutrals, just a box full of firsts. And so it's out of the car at the moment, but that's all right. Um, so when I finished it, drove it for years, and then a major problem started with the car. I kept blowing a fuse, yeah? Well, I'd used an old Mustang wiring harness, and what was happening was the wires were getting wrapped around the steering column and shorting out, they blow the fuse. So I said, right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to put a new wiring harness in it. Fine. This is six years ago. So I said, great, that'll work. So I'll buy one of these Ron Francis super-duper wiring harnesses for it. Well, to effectively put the wiring harness in, you really will take the engine and gearbox out of the way. Okay. Well, one engine and gearbox is out of the way. We'll have, we'll have a different one. So I added about 200 horsepower, fuel injection, limit slip rear axle, changed all the suspension because I wasn't overly pleased with it. Then I got uh, Aldan shock absorbers, Fat man front suspension, polished stainless steel A-arms. Had the body painted and had a new interior put in it. So other than that, I left it alone. It was exact, exactly stock. So in the meantime, when I was flying for the army, 
I decided from a very little kid, when I was 10 years old, there's a place called Bush Fair near Lattenbush, little shopping centre in England, got a pub in it called The Painted Lady. You remember that, Steve? Yep. In the parking lot of that pub was the most gorgeous automobile I had ever seen in my life. Flying fenders, long bonnet, little bitty tail, two seats, beautiful car. It was a Morgan. I thought, I'm, I'm thrilled. Then I saw on TV a documentary of how they made them. It's like, I've got to have one of them. Got to have one of them. Little did I know that it would cost the best part of a year's salary and get three, take three years to buy one. So I said, well, that's a bit of a problem. So I started looking for a used one. And it's, it turns out I got a bonus for being a pilot in the army. So I said, I know what I'm going to do with that, yeah? Two years on the internet before I found the car I now own, which was a Morgan Plus 8 with a roller throttle and treated wood, which is sitting in the garage right now, next to a 65 Mustang Fastback, which is a running driving car. It just, you wouldn't want to be seen running and driving it. Uh, maybe running away from it, perhaps, but not in it. So it's purple at the moment, and that's the next restoration. Next to that is a 73 VW Super Beetle convertible, which is in an excellent state of rust. Really what you've got here is a VW pile of metal oxide. It's shaped like a VW, but it really isn't there. It's just a myth. I believe they call that the uh, Wolfsburg edition. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it might be the Rustburg edition in my case, but yeah, like that. It's something like that. So next to that are two John Cooper Works Mini Coopers. One's a Clubman, the other one's a 17 uh, JCW, and I call naturally, it's fairly new, it's only got 20,000 miles on it. I could not let that rest, could I? I mean, it's only got 230 horsepower. I've got to have some more than that. So a couple of calls to Mini Mania and M7. And in comes uh, about 1,800 bucks worth of bits in boxes. And a little bitty box. That is the secret to that car, right? Because what it is, of course, is a tuna fish. Looks like a fish. Stick your tuna fish in, put your bits on, go drive. 280 horsepower Mini Cooper S. That thing will flat scream. It is so much fun. And it embarrasses so many people. I absolutely adore that little car. It's great. And the only reason I ever got into minis was because of that twit next to me over there. So I was actually going to ask, so you have a lot of experience turning wrenches. You've also been in magazines for your, <clears throat> your miniatures and your collections and things of that nature. I've seen the work you do. It's very, very good. We don't have to go, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. It's exceptional. So Steve, do you have the same wrench turning background that John does? Or how did you get to where you are now with your cars? No, no, not at all. I'm just a cheap bastard who won't let anybody else work on my cars. That is the sum total of it. There's nothing else to it. Actually, what happened, I have nowhere near that mechanical background at all. It wasn't until about, let's see, 2002, when the, the new Mini came out in the States that I actually got into anything. I bought a 2002 Mini, which I gave to my son in the end, and I bought a 2004 Mini, known as the MC40, and we'll come on to some of those stories too. And, you know, as I said, I started in autocross a little bit and started to mess around with it. And, you know, you get all kinds of ads about, well, try to do this and try to do that to it. So well, I'll give it a try. But, you know, I couldn't take it to the dealer because I couldn't afford it. Didn't want to anyway. Didn't want to mess with my car. So bought some tools, bought some bits, you know, put a pulley on it, put a cold intake on it, that kind of stuff. And it started going faster and faster. And then, you know, John and I went actually to, as I said, on his 50th birthday down to Atlanta to do that. And then it was it. It was like, let's get these cars on the track and let's do some serious stuff. And that was when I really started pulling wrenches and taking cars apart and 
reading books and then screwing it up and taking it apart and putting it back together again. And then as, as is uh, the name of the show, break it, fix it, break it, fix it. Right. And exactly. That's it. So you both have mini Coopers. Is that just a inherent patriotic British thing? Or did you have minis old school minis as we call them here when you were younger? It's not very patriotic because mm-hmm. they're German, aren't they? Well, they are. <laughs> well, the new ones are. The new, the new ones are. Actually, I, um, when I first came to the States, you know, because I was English, of course, I was looking for stuff that would be, you know, a little bit of a, of a home style kind of thing. And I actually saw a classic mini for sale in a place called Leesburg, Virginia. I didn't actually go get it at that particular point in time, but I thought, you know, that would be fun to have an old mini because it's very unusual. You know, it probably gets a lot of attention. So I actually ended up buying a uh, 1984 classic mini, which I've still got out in the garage. 25th anniversary edition, so it's silver. And that's another car that I've got to work on myself because nobody else can work on it, or very, very few folks. So joined a club, you know, the mini capital mini register. Actually was president of that for a while. Tooled around, you know, doing Christmas shows and all kinds of stuff and exhibitions with that car. That was before I got into the new mini at all and i say i got a 2004 which was the mc40 and then we put that on the track of course at that point john had his focus he was a fold man at that particular point in time and was uh, running his focus all over the place trying to keep up with his older brother because at that point in time not, not only did he not have a car that was as fast as mine he didn't have the talent either i just want to make that clear you can repeat that you can put it on a loop and just put that on the podcast that there was a time when I had a faster car than him and could drive better than him. Doesn't occur anymore, but it did back then. It was fleeting, so. Chad. I want to dive in just to the younger versions of yourselves. Not that you're not that you're that old. Maybe no classic mini in your portfolio, but was there the other British staple in there? Was there a Cortina or was there a Mondeo or anything like that? Because the way it's portrayed to us had- here across the pond is that everybody owned a Cortina at some point in their life? Well, I, it's not a Cortina story, but when I first got in industry in, in England, uh, it's very common for part of the benefits in uh, companies in England for you get a company car. And the first company car I ever had was a 1.6 full Capri. And then I got promoted and got a two liter. That was special. A two liter Capri, mate. And that thing was awesome. I loved that car. So I made it. I, I was all the way to the top as far as I was concerned. I had a Really neat sports car, you know, it was a fold, but you know, it was what it was. So, yeah. If it's any consolation, my dad had a Capri. I believe it was a 76 with a 2.8 liter. He must have been way up in management. That's all I can say. He must have been. He gave him a track car, mate. <laughs> he told me more than once he spent more time going backwards in that car than forwards because it was it's very, very tail happy. The absolute death trap. Yeah, yeah. You guys probably saw the end or quote unquote the end of the Grand Tour with our, our favorite trio, you know, Clarkson, Hammond, and May. Were you guys saddened in the same way that they were with the, the exodus of the, the Mondeo or the Cortina to just see it go away? It's like, it's like saying no. I'm nostalgic about a Pinto, for God's sake. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, yep. There are certain yeah, good riddance. That thing was a piece of crap. Right. You know, measles, herpes, Cortinas, Capris, those things. No, you don't want that hanging around, mate. <laughs> you want no. to get that off the road. No, they're, they're dangerous. Population yeah. control. I have to ask, this This one is going to be one of my favorite questions for an interview. But since you guys are from England, if you could have a beer with any one of the three, Clarkson, Hammond, or May, who would it be? 
Steve, you go first. Uh, May, I think. One, because he's got so many other interests. You know. That's why. <laughs> well, you know, he likes trains and stuff like that, builds big Legos and stuff, so he's really cool. No, Captain, and I'm about his same pace as well, so yeah, that's right. So I think James May would be a, a lot of fun. He's a, I think he's a pretty neat. And not only that, you know, I don't like people that I'm too much taller than, so I can't go with Hammond because I'm like six foot taller than he is. And Clarkson is just an ass, so, you know, he don't count. Your turn, John. Uh, it's got to be the producer that took the blow from Clarkson. I think mean, that's the blow. <laughs> if anybody's going to stick his nose in front of Clarkson, mate, you got that. He got him fired. Cool. That's the bloke I'm on. Yeah. Uh, the hamster's pretty cool. Why? Because he's the only one who's got the balls to stand up to Clarkson. I love it. He may be short, but he's wiry, me also. I mean, he's wiry. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, I, oh, man. i got to contain myself. <laughs> so let's fast forward a bit. You guys have done some pro solo. You've done some autocross. Obviously, you guys have been competitive. All three brothers competitive probably since day one. I know you guys are avid time trialers now, and I, I've run with you guys as well. But let's fast forward to I somehow got to be both of your instructors. You did? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and th that's the reason. So it's your bloody fault. Yeah. That's the reason we've had no success since. Yeah. So I can't drive, damn it. <laughs> I mean, sod all. Not a trophy. Not a bleep. Yeah, not a thing. Not a thing. No, actually, All the time I thought it was, I had no talent, and that's not true. No, well, I mean, you could say that because even Eric couldn't bring it out of us, could he? Oh, oh, ow. Oh, ow. Complete lack of talent. <laughs> Nothing you do about that. You know, you can teach, you can train, you can mentor, but you can't fix stupid, can you? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the Glen, because that was one heck of a weekend for both of you guys. And I know, John, you got a really good story. Which really sets up uh, the I, whole curse of the mini conversation. Ah. Well, hold on. Well, hold on. Let me tell a story before he starts, because I'll probably fall asleep when he tells that story again. So I'm going to tell you a story that preambles that one. So it's, it's about a bear, and, and it's, very, it's a very important bear. Does it involve a small blonde child and a bowl of porridge? Yeah, it's, it's a bit um, of a new story, isn't it, this one coming up? <laughs> yeah. That's it. Just steal the punchline right up the top. Just steal the punchline. No, it doesn't. Anyway, so I'm doing solo cross up in Cumberland, Maryland, you know, and, and I have a house up there. So I took the mini out and it wasn't really that uh, modified at that point in time. It was just a regular mini. So I take the mini up there and I go up there on a Friday. We run Saturday, Sunday. So I leave the car outside the house and about two o'clock in the morning, I hear this noise outside, scraping noise, really weird noise. So I go down in the house, look out the window, and there is a bear on the back of my mini ripping it to pieces. In one paw, he has got... I think uh, he's trying to mate with it. <laughs> and that does come into the story. But anyway, in one end, he's got the rear windscreen wiper, because I figured, you know, getting windscreen wipers in the bear world is fairly difficult. So that's why he took one of those. He rips off the bumper cover of the back, literally rips it off with his teeth. I'm looking at him wrecking my car. I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do? So there's a broom in the house, and I thought, oh, no, I'll go, you know, hit him with a broom. But I've heard there's stories about poking a bear that you're not supposed to do. So I didn't think that was an idea. So I think to myself, I don't know. I, said, I did what any red-blooded Anglo-American would do. I went and woke, and woke my wife up. That's what I did. 
So I go upstairs and I wake her up. Well, she's from the mountains. It's legitimate. It's not that funny. So anyway, I go upstairs. I wake her up. I said, there's a bear eating my car. And she said, and I didn't think it was funny at the time. She said, well, he's probably hungry. Now, if it wasn't a true story, I would have said that was pretty funny, but I didn't take it that way. So I said, there's a bear eating my car. I'm not kidding. So she goes back downstairs with me, goes up, looks out the window, and now the bear is not on the back of the car anymore. He's standing on the side of it with his paws on the roof, shaking the car. And he's probably six foot at that point. And I go, what am I going to do? Yeah, he can't shoot the thing. Well, mind you, he didn't have a gun, so that didn't, didn't help much. But anyway, so she looks at me, she opens the door, sticks her head out and goes, shoot, and the bear runs away. And it's like, wow, that's, that, that's what you do with bears. It's, you don't come from the mountains, went upstairs and went to bed. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the bear, the mini, it thought it was trying to get salt out of it. Where's no bloody salt? Where are the holes in the top? <laughs> trying to put it on the windshield. Well, let me, well, let me tell you why it was trying to get in the car. See, because this is also my wife's fault. So I, as far as I'm concerned, it was her job to get rid of the damn thing anyway. So before I came up that day, she says to me, stop by the nursery and pick up some mulch. So I said, sure, you know, you can't get too much mulch in a mini. So I go down the uh, nursery, open the back of the car, the guy get, throws three bags of mulch in. I get up there, remember, park the car. I come to find out it is cocoa shell mulch. That is, it's the husk of the cocoa bean, which is used to make chocolate. So my buddy Yogi was just trying to get himself some chocolate dessert at the back of my car. That's all he wanted. That was why he broke into the bloody thing in the first place. Fortunately, I think the bear is my spirit animal. So therefore, the connection continues with this cursed mini and, <laughs> the <blend> and everything else. <laughs> yeah, and that, that, goes, that goes back. That was kind of the first prelude for, oh, my God, this car is definitely cursed. So anyway, so some, fast forward some years later, we've gone to Atlanta, we've done a few bits and pieces, we've thrown some wrenches on it, and John and I end up at Watkins Glen. At the coaches meeting, I was told, hey, you have two brothers in the Mini, and I was thinking to myself, great, I've got two 20-year-olds in a hot-rotted, slammed Mini Cooper, what am I in for this weekend? And as I round the corner and you guys were in a bay not even that far from me i was i was very surprised i was very taken aback two mature gentlemen like yourselves yeah now what you're trying to say is two fat 50-ish foreigners that's exactly right <laughs> in a, in a, in a car with an engine the size of a wallet one of the goals in all this by the way of us doing this racing thingy is yeah there's the thrill of the racing but also the fact that we get to go on places that very few people get to go in, in the world and places yeah. that we'd heard about in England. And you can pick up your bottle of beverage and tell stories that nobody believes. It's awesome. So we go to some of the most famous tracks in the world and that's part of what we do. We, we have what's called a treat track every year and we pick one track that's world famous and go there. We've been to Indy and Daytona and the little Talladega, but Watkins Glen, all over the place. So the Glen was an especial challenge. And we got to share in some of that enthusiasm with you last year, because for a lot of us, the Cannonball Run is very similar. Yeah. And so oh, coming, and coming to Barber last year was part of that bucket list of going to a world famous track. Uh, again, thank you for hosting us. That was an incredible weekend. But oh yeah, it's. It's bucket list and it buckets down. It's Alabama, four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> that did bloody rain. It did yeah. rain that day. No two ways around. So the Glen, you know, is 
for us especially because a lot of British drivers drove there in the Formula One back in Formula One days, Formula Two, the Formula Three days. People that we idolise, people like Graham Hill and Sterling Moss have driven that track. So there we are walking through the town and there are paving stones in the town with the names of our heroes who have eaten in the restaurants we're going to and have driven on the track that we're going to go drive on. So this is like reverence to us, yeah? Reverence be damned. Let's go fast. So we get on this world famous fast track in a car that most cars on the track would outrun in second, but it's all right. We're going as fast as we can, yeah? So we get in the car and we're trading stories. What about this corner? What about that one? Can't get up the essence. Every time we get up the essence, people are passing us left and right. Diabolical. Point buys left and right. Cannot figure it out. So Steve and I said to each other, we need to get someone to show us how to do this. And that was you. And what we were doing was changing out a third, coming into turn two to go up the S's. And you said, don't do that, leave it in fourth. Which of course, Steve and I are both like, cobblers, no way. Yes way. And of course we got up the hill much faster. And we started to develop quite a bit of speed. Got that little mini up to about 137 miles an hour on that back straight, going into the bus stop. Which in a mini is trucking right along. Your car was going pretty well. Uh, fortunately, it's got pretty decent brakes because I'd have killed myself five times if it didn't. We, I'm going around, yeah, after, after you'd left us and I'm on my own, having a lot of fun. Well, Steve and I are firm believers in the fact that cars talk to you. They do. They do, especially demonic cars like this one. It's like Damien, you know, this thing. And it was talking to us very, very gently by dropping its entrails onto the ground in the shed. So it's dripping steadily. It's a British car. Not only do we expect it, if it's not dripping, it's empty, yeah? <laughs> Joe White, well, look underneath. What's that, Steve? Steve looks at it. Don't know, mate. I think that's power steering fluid. Ah, no big deal. But these little cars, front-wheel drive cars, when you're hammering the steering around, have a tendency to boil the fluid, and it pukes out all over the place. Nothing but a thing, yeah? Let's back on the track. No problems. On the track we go. So I go around a couple of laps. Come down, boom, onto the the main straight, the pit straight, and then coming up turn two, steering gets a little bit stiff right before I'm starting to turn in. Like, oh no, power steering's gone, yeah? All the fluid's pissed out. No big deal. So I'm like, I'm gonna, I ain't gonna stop. I'm not going in the bloody pits. I'm gonna complete this lap, sonny. I paid for this. And around I go. And it's, oh, it's not that bad. It doesn't weigh that much, right? So it's like, ah, oh, sod it. And the faster you go, the better it is anyway. So put your foot on the pedal, you'll be all right. Well, by this time, there's sort of concerned looks of people around the track. But that's all right. So we go through the bus stop, down five, up through seven. And all of a sudden, I see black flags. I'm like, oh, no, I'm trying to get into the pits and get this thing fixed. Will ya? Black flags, big black flags. So I'm sort of coasting to a halt. Black flag pointed. Stop. Okay. Red flag. Okay. So I pull over onto the grass, and I'm sitting there with a little car idling, you know, and behind me comes a GT Mustang, and he's blowing his horn, yeah, 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 and I'm like, yeah, yeah, nice mini, yeah, it goes well, doesn't it? Yeah, lovely little car. Oh, I wonder what's going on. Somebody's obviously hit, obviously hit the wall in eight or nine up ahead of us. So about that time, I hear the sirens, and there's lights, and up comes the emergency vehicles to go up and rescue this prat who just bashed the wall. So as I'm looking, you know, you can't turn very far. The emergency vehicle says a fire engine, an ambulance, a rescue car, jaws alive. There's like four helicopters flying. So, screech, next to me. What's the matter, officer? 
the speedometer's broke, you know, I was just guessing. And the cab gets up and he comes running over to the car. And I'm sort of like, oh, nice, yeah, it's a nice little motor. Why don't you go rescue the prat who hurt himself up there? And he leans in the window and he goes, get out. I, oh, no, I wasn't going that fast, officer. He goes, get out now. What? So I'm starting to undo the belt, you know, the little buckle thing, you know, making sure I'm smelling good. And he says, you're on fire. I'm like, yeah, boom, out the door and jump. Sure enough, this smoke billowing out the back of the car. And by this, so I'm like, okay. And another guy runs out the fire engine, comes around the front of the car, and he says, where's the hood latch? I have no clue. It's Steve's car. I don't know where it is. It, um, it's there in the car. Because I've, I've suddenly figured out it's probably on the wrong side, isn't it? The hood latch is on the passenger side in this little motor. So I'm slowly figuring this out. Whilst about that time, some little chap about that tall grabs me by the shoulders, spins me around and pins me up against the ambulance. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what's up? And he goes, okay, the hood latch. And he pins me back in and he goes, how many fingers have I got? Like, I'm sort of hoping 10, but there's four in front of me. And he says, how many now? I said, three. He goes, you all right? And I'm like, oh yeah, what's the problem? By this time they figured out how to open the hood of the Mini, and there are flames, not much, flames shooting out the engine. It's bad because the fire should be inside the engine, you know, the outside flames now, <laughs> not a good thing. So he says, you got to come with me. I'm like, okay. So he bundles me into the ambulance. So car, yeah, car, not, not mine, not my car right there. Uh, you need to get that. So the guys come around and they gently pick up this little motor to put it on the back of the tow truck. Yeah, to get it up on the flatbed because it's so low and so little it wouldn't actually get over the ramp so all these guys cluster around the front and they pick it up and they march it up on the back of the flatbed put it down so i get in the ambulance and they're doing the so this guy comes up he goes get off me you're all right he's giving me oxygen why am i getting oxygen i'm perfectly all right and it, so he's, then he's, he's doing things with little discs sticking over here and stuff and sticking his fingers up under my neck. He's like, you all right, mate? Yeah, I'm fine. He says, all right, I think you're all right. I, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that for about the past 10 minutes, Never mind. But don't worry about the freaking car that's burning to the ground over there. You take care of me. So off we go back to the paddock. Into the paddock we go and here's Steve. Well, apparently there'd been a radio call that my wife and Steve had heard while I'm out there. Number 37 on fire. So we get the car, get it off the back of the flatbed, put it up on jack stands, and it's melting. The bottom of the cars, all the wires are melted, it's nasty. I'm thinking we'll put it back on the track. Steve's like, no, probably not. About that time, up comes a corner marshal. He goes over to Steve, he says, is that your car? He says, yeah. He said, uh, we saw you out there. And he goes, no, it's actually my brother. So he comes over to me, he says, were you driving that car? I said, yeah. He said, I'm the corner marshal from turn two. And remember, I stopped at turn seven, which is, I don't know, about 150 miles away. And he says, when you went past me, flames were shooting out from under the car, both sides and in the rear. No way. He's like, yeah. He said, we tried to stop you all the way to turn seven and you just ignored everybody. Like, well, that's, I was racing, mate. Well, no, I don't want to stop, do I? I don't want to do that. As it turns out, it was probably a really, really smart thing to do, just by coincidence. Because as the fluid drained out, caught fire, the wind, because I was going so fast, blew the flames out, the fluid puked on the ground, 
and then I got arrested and thrown into jail. <laughs> yeah, so not a bad day at Watkins Glen, all in all, you know. So that was about the third time that thing went home on trailer. It's very fortunate, actual fact. John didn't get hurt or anything, and none of his clothes got hurt or anything, especially his choir suit, which yeah. was actually sitting on the chair in the garage and not on his back. Fire his fire suit was very safe. Not a mark on that fire suit. Lovely. No, no, that's very good. Yeah, yeah. So, Steve, that was the first fire and the second plague. We had the bear attack, our first inferno, yep. followed by the yep. second inferno. Yeah, see, like I said, I'm a cheap sod. So what happened was when I got it back home again, I decided that, you know, I can fix it. No big deal. So I, you know, put the car up, get underneath it, take the power steering out because it's electric anyway, take all the hoses out, everything, just take it all apart. You know, throw all that crap away, buy a whole bunch of new stuff, put it back in again, put some more power steering fluid in it, start it up, works fine. No problem. It's running peachy king. So I go, okay, fine. When's the next event? Next event is at Shenny. So I drove it to Shenny. I didn't, didn't tow it. Drove it to Shenny. Everything was perfectly fine. We're running on Shenny. And Eric, I do believe you were there that time too, weren't you? You actually were, right? It's you! So, uh, you. <laughs> I'm telling you. This, yeah. <laughs> he even looks like a bear now. You come to look yeah, at it. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, it's a, bear, it's a bear suit he was in that day. I tell you, anyway. So we're at, we're at Shenny, right? So I'm driving the Mini around Shenny. And I'm going doing the same thing. You know, going as fast as I can through the corners, and everybody else but still going as fast as I can go and there's somebody going toot toot beep 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 around the track well what the hell is that supposed to mean I have no idea so I'm coming down the, the straightaway you know doing that U-turn coming back in again and all of a sudden the uh, steering gets really stiff I went I've heard this freaking story before. So I know what's the matter with this. The power steering's pissed out all over again. As you come over the hill at Shenandoah through that U-turn, you now can just go straight into the pit. So I just went, okay, fine. You know, hand out the window, went straight, let it run down the hill into the middle of the paddock, stop the car, and it instantly fills with smoke. Instantly. I mean, it's like, just like that. It fills with smoke. So I think, well, I probably had better get out. Don't need any advice. Not like my brother. Don't need anybody coming up talking to you. Just get the fuck out of the car. So I undo everything, jump out the car, and the problem was there was probably 50 people who now wanted to help me with fire extinguishers. And there are fire extinguishers and shit everywhere. There's smoke from the car, there's white powder all over the place. I'm standing next to it trying to tell people, it's all right, don't worry about it. It's done it before, I can fix it, it's no big deal. And then someone opens, opens the hood and the chimney effect happens and boof. Now, somebody said to me, I don't know it was, have you turned it off? And I said, of course I've turned it off. But I didn't notice at the time I was lying because it was still on, which meant the fuel pump was on. So every time somebody went up with a fire extinguisher, they put the fire out, then the fuel would come and go, woof, up again. Woof. And I did it like four or five times. I went, oh, wait a minute, let me take the key out. So I took the key out, and uh, that was that, 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 that time, even I couldn't fix it. There was hardly anything left, any plastic left under that hood at all. Your reenactment of Chernobyl was quite authentic. Oh, it was a moment. <laughs> Yeah, there was crap everywhere. It was clouds and stuff all over the place. So what you didn't know is if we saw you coming in with the smoke coming out from underneath the car, I had yelled to the to the crew, Steve's on fire, grab your fire extinguisher. And so we, as you stopped, <laughs> we were running towards you. And I remember yelling at you in the car, you're on fire, you're on fire. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, get out. <laughs> and at that point, we just unloaded the fire extinguishers all over the yeah. car. Yeah. You said it wrong. Yeah. What you yeah. should have said was, you're on fire again. 
<laughs> By the way, you know, in the, in the world of races, stuff like this happens. You know, cars blow up, bits come off, gearboxes drop out the bottom, that sort of thing. But in the world of civilians, this is not a common occurrence, yeah? So we had our niece, Miranda, there. Carolyn and I's niece. Actually, Carolyn's niece was there. And she saw this whole event. By the way, I'm on the track behind him and come around the corner to this great column of smoke coming out the <laughs> going, that's not good. No, that's my brother. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, he'll fix it. I got, I got another 10 minutes on this session. I'm rocking, baby. So Miranda apparently comes up to the car with Carolyn, and she turns to Carolyn and says, is it normal for flames to be coming out from underneath the car? <laughs> She had no clue that this was not a normal occurrence, even for us. After that, we loaded your car up on my yeah. trailer, and I took you home, began yep. the process of finding a replacement. Yep, that's exactly what happened, yep. Because this time, even with all the wrenches and the cheap shit, so I've got certain stuff I do. So we get it back to my house. I put it in the uh, in the courtyard, and I you know, get underneath it. And there, all it was was the block, and everything else was gone. All the plastic's gone, everything's gone, so I could see it, it does in. Nope, even I can't fix this one. And by the way, the reason it did it was because I changed out everything I said on the power steering fluid and all that kind of stuff. But the rack for the steering, which is right by the power steering pump, surprisingly enough, I didn't change the seal. And apparently when you put the seals under pressure after they've been on fire, they leak. Ask me how I know. Now, now wait a minute. Tip, right? wait a minute. I've got to call cobblers on this. I know exactly <laughs> what happened here. It was sod all to do with seals, although it was a contributing factor. What happened? You know that little funny little curve called the carousel? The carousel's got an ankle biter in it, doesn't it? It's about 35 degrees, yeah. Yeah, so there's a ridge. And if you put two wheels on the right side of that ridge and two wheels on the left side of the ridge, the middle of the car hits the ridge. What is there in a mini? Power steering curve. Power steering pump. Bye-bye now. Bye. Didn't need you anyway. (laughs) See ya. Now, little does we know, little did we know at that time, that many years later, we would spend a hell of a lot of time, effort, and money doing exactly what he did, tearing everything we can off the car, leave just the block and the metal, and go race. Yep, do it again. It was the carbon effect. So, moving on to the next part of this pestilent story, was, in fact, again, at Shanley, but this time on Main, right? So, as we were saying there, the car was pretty much wrecked. So, I ripped out of it what I could take, which was the um, seats and, you know, sway bars and crap like that, and went and bought another one. Well, actually, John got and found one down in Huntsville way. So, we find this Mini, actually, it was in uh, Nashville, wasn't it, John? Yeah, it was in Nashville. So, we find this Mini, looked just like the Mini that we set on fire twice and you know, had been broken into by a bear and all those kinds of things, except it wasn't an MC40. It wasn't a commemorative edition. But anyway, so we buy that one. So I go down and get it, drive it back. We take all the crap out of it or most of it, take the seats out, all that kind of good stuff, get it ready for the track. So no problem. Get back in it again. This time I check the power steering plant. Actually, I left it alone, which is probably a good idea. Apparently, I touched those crap. So anyway, so I we uh, take it to Shenny. As you know, Friday night we get there. John's there with his trailer and his focus he gets the focus off i parked the mini beside it we're up at the front end on main there where the paddock is and everything's good all good no problem we go back to the hotel have a couple of beers and uh, apparently the heavens opened in fact i think it was the second coming of the apocalypse that night because it hammered down uh, i mean one storm of locusts yeah 
yeah, that's right. Yep, yep. There was all kinds of stuff. Noah was staying in the room next to mine in the hotel. He hadn't got his boat ready at that time, but he was definitely there. Apparently it rained that night and it rained where we were. So the next morning we go back to Maine and there's a sign right by the cars that says subject to flooding. Well, no shit. At that point in time, there must have been 400 million gallons of water all around all the cars. My car, again, I, my car is abs- up to the wheels in water. It's full of water. The engine, the battery is dead as a dodo because it's been underwater for about two hours. So I'm looking at it. And Eric, I think it was you who came up and said, is that your car, Steve? And I said, yes, it is, because we didn't know how to get hold of you. And I tell you a story. Every time I go somewhere in this region at this point in time, someone comes up to me and says, is that your red mini? And I go, yep. I go, well, we couldn't get a hold of you. Well, why don't you just throw the fucking thing out? What difference does it make? You so, know, so, never, mind. never mind. So there's a little extra piece to that story, because I <laughs> happened to drive to Summit Point, Maine that night to meet up with some other people that were there in the paddock. And I saw your car parked there. And as I drove around, it, it had just started to open up. It was very difficult to see. And I'm in the I'm in the station wagon, which is a very low car and all that. I actually got beached in the middle of a paddock and it flooded out and, and it had killed like everything. It locked up the serpentine belt and all this kind of stuff. So I'm sitting there and pouring down rain and Mountain Man Dan, who as the listeners know, has been on several other episodes at this point, comes and basically yanks me out of the out of this giant puddle that I trapped myself in. So we're underneath of the, the canopies there and waiting for it to stop raining. And so I was trying, also trying to figure out why my car wasn't running. So soaking wet at this point, I'm underneath the car. We basically ripped the shroud out from underneath because it had jammed itself into the serpentine belt, keeping the car from wanting to start because it was locking up the peripherals. Got all that figured out again, because we knew it was the water was starting to rise. So I took the long way around as we were leaving, following in Dan's <laughs> wake because he's kind of breaking breaking the flood with his truck. I wasn't the only one to say this because the Crutchfields were there too. We actually saw your car lift and the back end was floating. Yeah. And keeping it in place <laughs> was the motor. Because it wasn't in the same parking spot we left it. That's correct. Because it was floating when we left. Yeah. And all of us looked at each other. We're like, I don't know how to get all the Steve. This is going to be ugly in the morning. <laughs> But we also, need, we also need to figure out how to get out of here. We don't want to get hold of Steve. <laughs> don't tell him. Whatever you do, nothing he can do. So that's why Noah didn't have, he didn't have his boat because he was using my bloody car. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, next next morning we get there and it's full of water and there's shit everywhere. Were the flashers still on? Because that was the funniest part. So. As the car was floating, the hazard lights were just... <laughs> <laughs> the, no, the battery was dead. <laughs> yeah, there was dead fish all over the place because they'd all been electrocuted with the battery. That's what it was. So after the great yeah, flood, so, so that, that ruined your weekend. Let's let's say that. Yeah. Well, yeah. not John's. I should point out. John's like, well, so gee, I'm taking the focus out. That's fine. It's fine. Well, my so. focus was in the trailer completely dry. Yeah, that was lucky. Yeah, the flood, right. I mean, so why am I worried about his mother? I mean, I've got track time to get. That's yeah, that's what probably loves for. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I love work, watching him work on it. So the <laughs> as the time's gone by, a little tribute to that little car, time's gone by, Steve is um, distressed to some degree about this situation. So he starts pulling things out of the car and he's using all sorts of language I haven't heard since I was a very small child. And 
is water gushing he opens the doors and water gushes out of water, the car. Yeah, right, yeah. The yeah. streets were wet. So I'm like, that's a bit naughty. So he's pulling out stuff and then he decides, and he, by the way, he's putting it in everybody's way, but he's just ripping stuff. He's getting, pulling carpet out of carpet, soaking wet. And he gets in and I look at him and I say, what do you want to do, Steve? You know, what are you going to do with the motor? He said, I don't know. I said, put the key in it. He says, go on. I said, put the key in it. So he puts the key in it. We charge the battery, turns the key and it starts. No, right, start right up. It shot three foot columns of water <laughs> out of his it looked like two hours. <laughs> just all the water got And he drove it. God, that thing would not give up. But that wasn't the final plague either. There's another one after that that involves... Oh, yeah, 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 you ain't done yet. Yeah, no, I ain't done yet. So, uh, but this one's kind of kind of the car. So I bring the car home and, you know, it's soaking wet. And by the way, the, there is a um, mark on the side of the car, HWM, high water mark. And it is about 15 and a half inches off the ground. It is, it, 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 there was a lot of water. In that, in that on book. the water line, his, his is higher. Yeah. So anyway, so about a week later, I'm sitting in the house here and my wife comes down. She goes, come upstairs, come upstairs, come upstairs, come and see. So, you know, I said, okay, fine. So I go upstairs, go into the, the, the front of the house there, just above where the car is. And there is a swarm of bees that you cannot see through. It is, you know, I don't know, about 20 feet across, about 10 feet high. Just bees. Thousands and thousands of bees. I mean, that's it. You know, the, the apocalypse. The world is coming to an end. We're done. That's all three. Now, I've had fly, fire, flood, and now pestilence. And they went into, at the eaves of our house, the queen did, and they made a nest, a nest in our house. That was the, uh, that's all thought, the trifecta of the uh, pestilences. Okay, so, so that car is biblical. It's absolutely biblical. There's no two ways about it. So yeah. after sacrificing a lamb over the hood of it, or the bonnet rather, dripping <laughs> blood on the roof, yeah. Yeah, has yeah. that seemed to calm the demonic powers of the mini, or is there something more to this story? That's... Yep, yep. Let me let me show you a picture because I think you'll enjoy this this funny. particular I picture. I'm going. It's not, it's not funny. Hold on a minute. Just bear with me. Talk amongst yourself for a little bit. I'll and, get, and for yeah, the I'll listeners, and for the listeners, we'll post this on the uh, the show notes. So yeah, you see where those tires are. Yeah, Steve, tell them what was where those tires are now. A Jersey wall was there seconds before that because on Sunday at Dominion I wrecked it, and you can't quite see it there. But yeah, I hit that, that tire wall. Hit the tire wall. Tire wall hit the Jersey wall. The Jersey wall got pushed about six foot down the hill and tipped over. That, I am afraid, is pretty much the end of that poor car. Looking for another bleat mini for it. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, we're gonna... yeah. I don't think your next car should be a mini at all. I, I think you're right. I'm, I'm thinking something much more, uh, you know, apocalyptic, you know, maybe a Firebird perhaps or something like that, you know? A Triumph. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm thinking Dodge Demon. <laughs> yes, you got to embrace. You embrace the demon. Maybe it's maybe it's yeah. the color. Like you need to get away from the red. You know, something more subtle like black. You know, that's not a demonic color in any way. So you know, yeah. just got to change the pace, right? But actually, this is a good segue. Yeah. Planning your third generation of minis, right? Is it really at the top of the list or are you considering something different? Why I'm looking at minis is because I've got so many spare parts now. I might as well just put it all back together again. I've got seats, I've got roll bars, I've got superchargers, I've got gearboxes, I've got 
so many bits and pieces that if I don't get another mini, that stuff's all just useless. That's why I'm going for minis first. That stuff will know. sell maybe on racing junk. Yeah, that may, that may be what happens. I don't know yet, but we'll see. That's what he dropped so Fred, racing junk. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pose the question this way. If, if you didn't have to worry about what it cost and you just wanted to buy a track car, start from scratch, get rid of the minis, gut reaction, what would it be? I, I think, you know, running may, maybe a spec me out or something like that would be a lot of fun. It's easy to work on, it's a blast. They're little small cars, so, you know, might, that could be fun, I think. Mate, he's old. Ah, he's a glutton for, <laughs> he's a glutton for punishment. <laughs> exactly. Only if, if money's no object, I don't care if I bring it up, right? And that, well, apparently, I don't care if I bring it up anyway. So what, just, what the hell? You just buy a box of Miatas. Well, that's something, what you do, right? I thought he was going to go, oh, I'm going to buy a 911 or something. Just something totally off the wall. Like, money's no object. Yeah. So, let's phrase it that way. If money was no object, top three cars in your three-car garage, what would they be? E-Type would be the first, without a doubt. That is the most beautiful car ever made. So, i definitely start with one of those. I think the McLaren MP2 is a hell of a car, too. I think that would be fun. We can park that next to it. Not too close, because we don't want a mating or anything. So, that would be a good second car, I think. And then the third one, I don't know. It would have to be a classic of some kind, some old. I don't know. A full Capri would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Or maybe a Cortina. I thought you were, I thought you were going to say a Hillman Imp. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, Eric, Eric, the first car I ever personally owned, I told you the Capri was the least. The first car I ever owned was a Hillman Imp. God bless it you. Got, it got 465 miles to the gallon. See, he's trying to improve, is he? I mean, that's where it's going. <laughs> this this torture goes back many, many years, apparently. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, John, if you had to add three bays to your existing garage, what would you put it in? <laughs> I would. Uh, actually, it, there's actually going to be several because there's some drawers. So, and some of them already own, so it's all right. So, an E-Type, no doubt, right? A Morgan Plus 8, already got one of those. The next one would be a four-and-a-half-litre blown 1929 Bentley from the Le Mans car. Uh, I mean, that is absolutely the epitome of a driver's car. I mean, chain drive, gears that you actually have to move, handbrake over there, you know, got timing on the steering wheel. Yeah, what a mower. And sound, oh, my God, there's nothing that sounds like that mower. I think if you went, yeah, John, you've got to come into, like, sort of nearly the 21st century. I think I'd have to tell you an Audi R8, which is an absolutely fair. Yeah, yeah, that's a good car. And then if I just add enough room, a McLaren 720S. Oh, yeah, it's a good choice, yeah. I want his, I want his cars next to the ones I chose. They're good cars. Did you just borrow his or just... No, he's selfish. He wouldn't let me drive him. He's terrible that way. Stories. I'm not lending him shit. I wouldn't lend him a toolbox. <laughs> He'll come back burnt. <laughs> so let me flip back for a second. If now with all of your guys' experience, all of these years wrench turning and competing and the laughs and everything that goes along with it and the curses as well, what advice would you give somebody that's just now starting out in this discipline? Don't. Don't do it. <laughs> no, <laughs> first things first, mate. Go get yourself from some source a wheelbarrow load of money where you need to start. Yep. The best way to make a small fortune in motorsports, as we all know, is to start with a big one. First thing I would do is say, go learn how to drive. Don't even worry about your car. Just go learn how to drive. Just go to some schools, start off, you know, figuring out 
what happens when you get a car going fast and you get momentum changes and all that kind of good stuff because that will hold you throughout your racing career whatever it turns out to be the car will fly you'll get good cars you'll drive faster cars you'll do better and better but if you don't get the nut behind the wheel nice and tight you'll be forever chasing yourself the thing you can chase fastest the cheapest that will make you go the fastest is you i will tell you this bit of advice get a good crew chief and i'll tell you why no unsupervised racing ever when i hit the wall at barber i was on my own when brother Steve hit the wall at Dominion, he's on his own. Ever go out on your own. Never do that. Yeah. Have adult supervision for our childish behavior. That is sage yeah. advice if there ever was one. So I, I 100% agree. <laughs> when we are all together, you know, as a larger group, that's part of, you know, we talked about that in episode two, where we come to each other's rescue. It's the premise of break fix. I mean, it's not the, the whole theme of what we talk about here. And obviously we don't want to portray racing as a big crash fest. I mean, things happen. They're mechanical. Wait, it's not. Failures. <laughs> <laughs> To your point earlier, the race cars and even the track prepared cars, because they are very different full on race cars versus track prepared cars, they're under such extreme stresses that you would never encounter yep. the engineering failures that we encounter on the street. So I don't want to dissuade anybody from trying it. You know, we've, we've tried our best in the previous episode to talk about what it's like your first time out and, and to advocate for people to try it with the cars that they have. I don't want them to run away scared, but there's life lessons to be learned here. The harder you push, like in any Sport. If you were a runner, a marathon runner, or if you're a football player, there's always the risk of injury. There's always the risk of something going wrong. The harder you push and the more you reach for that trophy or reach for that goal. So, you know, that's it's very sage advice at the end of the day. Well, I'll tell you, Eric, you know, it's a lot different getting hit dead smack in the face by a 300 pound linebacker than it is letting your piece of metal hit the wall for you. This is very true. <laughs> I feel much more at ease you know, hitting something than getting hit by something. I'll, I'll put it that way. Yeah, don't get in the motor racing to lose weight. It don't work. <laughs> Absolute waste That's of time. Another valid point. <laughs> For me personally, the goal of getting in the car was improvement. Now, I don't really yet know what that means. And I'm deadly serious there. There isn't an end to that, right? Because success is a journey, not a destination. Every time, every lap, every track, you learn something. And you challenge yourself yeah. harder and harder and harder. And you get more and more dissatisfied with yourself. And then when you hit that good lap, that one good one out of the 57 that sucked is well worth the effort. It is in and of itself its own reward. And especially if you're not racing high dollar stuff, and we don't, obviously, you're not that worried if you bend it. I mean, other than, you know, if you get hurt. So that isn't a worry on your mind. You're not worried about a bunch of snapper heads and grandmas going the other way while you're trying to avoid a pothole. You're same way, same day with like-minded people who are trying to improve and learn and compete against each other. And that is in and of itself its own reward. The one thing that sharpens you the most is competition. It doesn't matter what level that is, whether it's solo, TT, road race, it doesn't really matter. You're going to get better because you want to. You have to have that desire to get better. And you run across people in this sport, in this little amateur game that we play, some of whom are really pretty damn good at this. And you can learn from them and try and go get them. And there's no greater reward, ask me how I know, than finally catching up that one guy who's been a pain in your side ever since you've been doing this and watching him stick his little finger out the window. 
there, there, <laughs> your heart rate goes up, you puff up with pride, you, know, you can hear yourself screaming on the recording at the end of the day. To me, there's no illusion that we're ever going to be pro racing drivers or even particularly good ones, but we're going to be the best we can and get the most fun out of little cars as we possibly can while we've got the time and money to do it. And so it builds its own reward and you get more and more competitive, faster, more and more desire to go a little faster. The trouble is where do you draw the line? Because how fast do you want to go? How much money you got? I got 10 miles an hour if you got $10,000 and so on and so on. So you just eventually have to set the bar and realize what your expectations are for yourself what your expectations are for the particular vehicle that you're driving, and then try and maximize and optimize everything you can within the box you just built. If you can do that, you can walk away proud of yourself if you were 15th or first, because you maximized what tools you had in your hand at that time to include yourself. And that's, I think, one of the greatest rewards of motorsports of all. I cannot agree more. That is that is very well put. Advice for people getting into this, and we've really said it, I think. Uh, yeah, it's great for the mechanical side of it, right? And there's a lot of cerebral effort into what it takes to get a car to run fast and how you handle it and the driving techniques and all that kind of good stuff. So there's a lot of physical skill to it, as well as if you, drive, you, know, if you like working on cars, it's a lot of fun doing that kind of stuff. Actually, yeah. what I like about GTM, and, and I mean, no, no criticism to the guys down here, but when I've raced up with you guys, it's a couple of things. Don't be afraid to ask for help, for advice, for a wrench, for a beer. It doesn't matter. Interact with those people and build a support group. Mm -hmm. Build a group of people who go racing with you, even if they're not always there. You know, so you've always got that with you. Like I said, whether they're physically there or not, you know, it might be you're going to call up, do you know somebody who's got a serpentine belt for a 04 Mini? All of a sudden, there's a support group and one arrives at your doorstep. Just a thousand things. If you isolate yourself, and like a lot of the guys who do autocross, just go, race, go on. Right? And they isolate themselves. You miss two-thirds of the experience of actually going there. I think, you know, it's great going out on the track, great going fast, great, you know, setting fire to things and smashing walls. That's all good. But the best thing I think that I get out of it is one, spending time with my brother because we live so far apart. That's awesome. And then the evenings are generally just great. You swap stories, you tell bullshit, you drink beer, you have fun, you unwind with a group of like-minded people. Whether they like you or not, at least they're going to hang out with you, you know? <laughs> as, as Brad says, you know, friends are the family you choose and it's very pointless. Yeah theme within our organization and you know it, it's I, we've been very fortunate to pick up members like yourselves you guys are great I mean I always look forward to talking to you and hanging out I know this year has been really tough for everybody with with the pandemic and everything that's going on tracks didn't reopen until recently we've had to postpone a bunch of our events the cannonball is really still up in the air we just now released the information about summer bash you know things of that nature and it's just been tough and you know this is a great way for us to get together but it's not the same to your point is everybody getting together at the event and, and doing what they're doing and what's really funny is yeah. i don't know maybe if you have telepathic powers unlike the demonic powers of the mini it was my segue <laughs> to kind of put us in top gear 
here and talk about your experiences with the club. And I know you're a lot newer than some of the other members that we've interviewed, but I think you did a good way of kind of driving into that. Well, you've got to remember, Steve is the COVID-19 of the racetrack. We spend months and months, <laughs> we finally open up and he shuts it down immediately. First time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But the camaraderie of the groups uh, is really the, the, the big value. John said it himself, you know, he and I have spent more time together as brothers in the last 15 years racing than we'd ever done for the previous 15 years. And that's just two brothers, right? Then there's you guys, you know, we've met you, met the rest of the GTM group. Every track you go to, someone knows you or you know them and they come up and, you know, they, they help you, you help them, you bullshit for a little while. One time on Shanny, there was one of the guys running a mini there and he over-tightened his lug nuts and stripped them and sent his wheel into the woods. So they um, towed his mini off, and John and I basically jacked it up, fixed it, put him a new wheel on, and he went running again. By the way, I, I think it's a bad thing to give yourself a point by. I'm just saying. All right. On that, gentlemen, I cannot thank you enough for spending all this time with us. I'm sure the people on the other end listening to this are going to be laughing their heads off. It's always a great time with the Latin lads, with both the Wade brothers, incredible stories. And I can't wait to see what the next plague is with the next red mini in the series. Horses and meteorites. One comment is just one. Greatest racing driver of all time. Eric, go. Senna. Steve. Sterling Moss. Ken Miles, Sonny. Hey. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah, yeah. But on that note, it's time to end. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thanks a lot. See ya. See you at the track. See ya. Thanks, Brad. Yeah, take care, Brad. Take care, Brad. If you like what you heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out at www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey listeners, Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great, so do we, and we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization, but we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.